It's good to be home. My wife Julie and I have been married for 17 years now. You know, we started here. So this is home for us in many ways. We look back in the early years of our marriage and we think of CBC. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we are confronted with your word. It is your word through which you speak to us. And oftentimes our ears are deaf. And so we pray this morning that as we read, as we think about what you've said here, that you would speak to us. Open our ears so we can hear what you have to say. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 931 B.C., Solomon died. He had done so well at the beginning of his reign. And he sinned at the end of his reign. And the Lord said, because of your idolatry, I'm going to take your kingdom and chop it down the middle. Actually, it was worse than the middle. Ten tribes go to someone else, and one or two go to you down in the south. And Solomon lives the end of his life knowing that this is coming. I've blown it. I've lost my kingdom. God said, I wouldn't do it in your day. I'm going to do it in your son's day. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. And as he comes to the throne, he's confronted with a challenge. The people who Solomon had ably organized and effectively managed and extracted every bit of tax money and labor out of them to build a nice kingdom, they were tired of it. Enough. We want a break. A new king is here. It's time for a transition. Maybe he will listen to reason. Notice the advice of the elders. If you serve them, if you listen to them, if you, if you would be the kind of king that God always intended for Israel, the kind of king who would lead them in covenant faithfulness and not lift his heart above his people. If you would be that kind of king, you got him locked up. Now the reality is, God had already said this thing was going to break. The kingdom's going to split. So in a sense, Rehoboam's expectation that he would keep his kingdom in the first place is sort of against what God wants to do already. And we see that play out. Who does he listen to instead? Right? We read in the text that he turns instead to the young men who grew up with him. The text says even more. There were young men who grew up with him and they served him. Notice in verse 8. The young men who grew up with him and served him. This was Rehoboam's entourage. These were people who worked for him. These are people who earned their livings by saying what to the king? Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, your majesty. What should we do? What does he want us to say? He, wants, he really wants to whip him up. Okay, yes, that's a good idea, sir. He listens to his own press, right? His own entourage. And the result is, he doesn't serve them. I suspect that Rehoboam was quite aware of the prophecy that he was going to lose his kingdom. And when confronted with a set of tribes that seems to be exerting some kind of independence... His approach is not to be conciliatory. That might show weakness. His approach is to threaten in an attempt to show strength and thereby scare them from running away and get out of God's prophecy. It doesn't work. The people leave and they instead pick a man named Jeroboam who had previously been a servant of Solomon, was in exile in Egypt. They bring him back and they make him their king. And now these two men, Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north have a choice to make. What are they going to do with their kingdoms? So Solomon is gone. 
Rain from 971 to 931 BC. You see the big blue area and the brown area behind me. The extent of his kingdom. When he dies, the kingdom breaks apart. A portion of it goes to Jeroboam in the north. And a portion of it goes to Rehoboam in the south. Notice that the kingdom in the north is big. It's bigger and better. That purple region in the south, if you cut it in half, Horizontally, everything south of the halfway line is basically desert. Not very nice. Rehoboam really did get a little teeny bit. And so when we find him there at Shechem, right, he has to ask himself a question now. How will I secure my kingdom? I've lost it. I've lost half of it. And here's an outline of where we're going. Number one, a failed summit at Shechem. This is the place where Rehoboam resists his prophecy, the prophecy that the kingdom will be gone. Number two, and point one, Jeroboam sees this prophecy fulfilled. Here he was, he came to Shechem as an ambassador with Israel to work for them, and he came home with a kingdom. Wow, that's a shopping trip. The kings now have to make their choices. They've got to make moves. How will I secure the kingdoms that I've been given? Rehoboam's going to make an attempt to invade the northern kingdom and get it back. Jeroboam is going to innovate. He's going to be creative. And there will be consequences of these actions that were based on fear. For Jeroboam, there will be a collapse of his kingdom. An exile will be predicted. For Rehoboam, there will be a dive into idolatry. And there will be an, an, an Egyptian invasion. So we've read already the failed summit at Shechem. Shechem was an important place. Important with historical significance for this historic opportunity. It's in the northern kingdom. Shechem was important historically for a number of reasons. The patriarchs visited this place. Abraham, Jacob, all his sons. They all passed through Shechem in the north. Joshua, when they returned from the... Uh, slaughtering of the uh, southern Judean cities, they go back to Shechem and renew the covenant there. So in that sense, Israel is in the land and they remember this place the way Americans might remember Philadelphia, where they signed the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. This is a very important place in the history of Israel. Eventually, Abimelech, the son of Gideon, tries to become king during the period of the judges and he establishes a kingdom, he tries at Shechem. This is a loaded place. When this name shows up in the Bible, big things are going to happen here. And it's at this place that Rehoboam gave into his fear, would not trust the Lord, and instead tried to halt the promised division. His actions suggest that he wanted to resist God's plan. Generally, a bad idea. It shows that something is wrong on the inside. It really does. Your actions betray what's going on inside. And let me suggest to you that Rehoboam was afraid. He was going to lose. He'd grown up in the palace and he was going to lose it. So he's going to try hard to get it back. So in Act 2, now in 1 Kings 12, 21, we watch the kings move to secure their kingdoms. And in 1 Kings 12, 21, we read... Now when Rehoboam had come 
To Jerusalem he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Feeling threatened, Rehoboam takes matters into his own hands. And he's going to do it by instigating a civil war. Now remember, God has already said, this is of the, I'm doing this, Rehoboam. So when he marshals his troops and they sharpen their swords, who are they actually fighting against? They're fighting against the Lord. God knows that. He sends a prophet. Verse 22, the word of God came to Shemaiah, the, son, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, you must not go up and fight against your relatives, the, son of his, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord, and returned and went their way according to the word of the Lord. I feel bad for Rehoboam. He really did suffer the loss of a lot of space. But he failed to remember that God was the one who was doing this. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Every man return to his home. This thing is from me. How would you have responded when faced with the loss of something you had expected for a long time? And you've come to the conclusion that this is God's will. This is what He wants. Do you resist? Do you fight? Do you spend years fighting against what He wants you to do? Do you give in to fear all along the way? Or do you stand back and you say, that's right, that's what He wants. I'm going to submit to His word and obey Him. It appears that Jeroboam submits. He goes back home. And we don't see him again for a few chapters. The scene instead shifts to Jeroboam's innovation. And we read in 1 Kings 25, Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went from there and built Penuel. And then Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam. It's not really a bad thought when you think about it. Israel has one central shrine. You can go to church wherever you want. Well, no, you can't. But Israel can, go to, Israel can only go to church, if you will, in one place, in Jerusalem. All the other deities of the ancient Near East have multiple temples in different... Oh, they may have a big temple in one city. But they've got little shrines everywhere. And if you want to set up a shrine for your own pagan deity, you can do so in your house. Just cut a little niche out of the wall, get a little idol, put it in there, and light some candles. Not Israel. Israel was commanded, you worship in one place. And that place is Jerusalem. So what that means is if anyone in Jeroboam's kingdom wants to go worship the Lord during the three feast days, they've got to leave his kingdom and go back to the place where everyone is congregating to worship. Now when that happens, guess who you meet along the way? You meet your old friends. And kind of like me coming back here, I say, it's great to see you again. And your kids are, look, at, I've got, you know, it's so sad that we're separated like this. 
you know, can I come back next year and stay with you guys? That'd be a lot of fun. And I spend the whole year now thinking about going back to visit my friends. And when we come back next year, we say, you know, the taxes up north are really tough. Maybe? No. You think we could get together and kick that guy out? I bet we could. And it all starts with the desire to go back to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And so Jeroboam's his, his thought here is not necessarily way off base, except for one thing. God had promised that the kingdom would be his. So what's he worried about? Previously, God had said to him through a prophet, I'm taking it from Solomon and I'm giving it to you. Full stop. So why is he here in his palace in a panic? I'll tell you why. He doesn't want to worship the Lord either. And therefore, he's unwilling to trust the promise that the Lord has made that he would get and keep this kingdom. So there's the capital city, Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam innovates in a religious manner. He consulted with his advisors, verse 28, and he made two golden calves and said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other one he put in Dan. Now these are not two random cities. He picked strategic locations. Dan is way in the north, and Bethel is down south. Notice it's close to the Jerusalem, the Judean border. Why? Well, so that the people in the middle would come down, and they're about to take their step across to go into Judea, and you put soldiers there. And you say, you can't cross. But we want to worship Yahweh. Hey, guess what? We got a new shrine right here. And they'll fuss and fight for the first few times. But after a while, people just give in. I'll just go to Bethel and worship at Bethel. And if you live way up in the north, well, who wants to make the trek every year? That's long. And it's far. And there's a Yahweh shrine here anyway. So he gives in to the people's human desire to be lazy in their worship, and sets up a shrine for them, and they love it. This thing became a sin for Israel. Sin for the people. They went as far as the one at Dan to worship. We know where Dan is today, up in Israel. The tell has been discovered and excavated for decades. And archaeologists have found Jeroboam's high place at Dan. This is one of the few places in the Bible, where we actually know and have an architectural installation that is mentioned in the scriptures. We know where the temple was, but we don't have anything from the temple. We know where the New Testament pool of Siloam is, where Jesus healed the man born blind, and we actually have the steps that he probably walked down. We don't have a lot of other installations like that. This is one of them. And you can see there the square area and the high place where they would have offered their sacrifices. See the platform for the shrine behind those steps? It's quite a significant place. A monumental staircase, that is, this is not the sort of thing a family with their children builds on a weekend. Would have cost money. It's pretty. It's decorative. This is innovation and money coming in from an institution like the government. It's a big place. The horned altar has been reconstructed You can see it there in the stainless steel mock-up. It's an example, a large example, of a smaller kind of altar, a horned altar. We see this in the Bible all the time. When people are in trouble, 
they go grab the horns of the altar, right? And it's like, it's like bass. They're playing tag with swords. Let's say, let's play tag with swords. Okay, you better get to base because you're dead. And sometimes they get there and they get killed anyway. They grab the horns of the altar. At Dan, one of the reasons we know how big the altar is, all of these have four horns. The one at Dan is no different. And we have one of the horns from that altar. And based on the size of that horn, they can reconstruct the size of that model. And here's what it looks like for scale. See that guy there? It's huge. That's a big altar. And the steps along the side would have led to the top where you huck the chopped up animals on there. If Gary Boatman were here, he would say, man, that makes me hungry. It's a big place. It's surrounded, in addition, by a courtyard where all the people would gather to worship. You can see that all those trees would have been gone. There are rooms on the side to put supplies and to put other things. This is a big worship area. Jeroboam is going to do this right. And what he sets up there are two golden calves, one in Dan, one in Bethel. It's possible that Israel is not just worshiping the calf, but they're understanding that the calf is a pedestal for the deity. That is to say, Jeroboam, it's possible that he's not saying, that's Yahweh, the bull god. No, he's saying, here's Yahweh's pedestal. And you can't see him, but he's standing on top of this bull. And we find these inscriptions around the ancient Near East where we have the deity, Baal or others, standing on top of a bull. Either way, what's going on here is a blending of Israelite worship and Canaanite worship. You know, if he had just pulled out some pagan god, that might have been harder for the people to accept. Instead, he pulls the truth, and he feeds, hollows it out, and he puts in there a lot of pagan religion. And the people accept it. We find in other places, calves and calf shrine models. Jeroboam is fitting right into the syncretistic worship, the Canaanite worship of the day. And this innovation becomes a sin for the whole nation. Notice he also made houses on high places in verse 31 and made priests from among all the people who were not from the sons of Levi. In addition, he sets up new feasts. It's not enough to say, okay, here's a new religion, but the people celebrate mine, and they go to Jerusalem for Passover, they're just going to go back. So he has to create new festivals. And so in verse 32 we read, Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah, like the one that's in Judah, right? It's a competing feast. He went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made, And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. Feeling threatened. This is important. Feeling threatened, Jeroboam became religious in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. God had promised Rehoboam, you're going to lose this kingdom. And Rehoboam didn't believe him and went to try to get it back. Jeroboam had been promised instead, I'm going to give you a kingdom. All you've got to do is do what's right. And because he would not believe the word of the Lord, he felt the need to secure his own land. And the only way he could come up with 
was to innovate religiously. This thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one of these altars. This is going to be a sin that has lasting effects for the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel will never escape from the consequences of this one act. Back at Dan, archaeologists have noticed that there are two different levels of this high place. The lower course of stones, you can see they're roughly hewn, dates to the time of Jeroboam. The second course of stones are nicer, they date to the time of Ahab. That is to say, this shrine had a long life, and it continued to tempt the people of Israel for a long time. We see this architecturally at the site. The shrine was still in use long after Jeroboam. You can see them again, the rough stones at the bottom, and then the nicer course of stones on top. His legacy for the kingdom of Israel looks like this throughout the rest of the whole book. Over and over again, we read statements like, the king and the people walked in the way of Jeroboam. They walked or lived like the house of Jeroboam. Or they walked in the sin of Jeroboam. Or they clung to the sin of Jeroboam. Or they followed the sins of Jeroboam. Or they did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. In Scripture, we read some phrase like this 17 times, just in First and Second Kings. The sin was started... And it never went away. God's going to declare to Jeroboam, you're going to lose the whole thing. And everybody here is going to exile because of what you did. And guess what? In 722, it happens. Why? Because of what Jeroboam started. His fear and lack of ability to trust the Lord means that 17 more times we're going to read of a king or the nation following in his sin, his lack of ability to trust what God had said to him, led him to conclude that he had to secure his own kingdom by his own means. And the results were devastating. Right? The fallout, we read in 13 and 14, we won't read those whole things, but we know that unrepentant Jeroboam loses his dynasty and Israel will eventually be exiled. In the south, unfaithful, Rehoboam turns to idolatry now to secure his kingdom. It's a surprise, but in chapter 14, verse 21, we read, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who previously we saw seemed to have accepted the word of the Lord and went back home, he went back home, but he was still nervous. He was still nervous, maybe a little bitter that he did lose that kingdom. And instead, he turns to idolatry just like Jeroboam did. Verse 21, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonitess. Verse 22, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy more than all their fathers had done with the sins they had committed. For they also built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. There were also male called prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. This sort of thing doesn't happen without the countenance of the king. 
Jeroboam wouldn't trust the Lord, innovated to secure his kingdom. Rehoboam wouldn't trust the Lord because he didn't like the news. He tried to secure his kingdom by his own means. And when God said no, he went home and pouted. You don't do that, do you? Go home and pout when God says no. Go home and I'm going to get you. Fails to lead and his kingdom turns away from the Lord with the result that they're invaded in his fifth year. Verse 25, it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. This is the temple. And Rehoboam loses it as punishment because of what happened. So let me ask you the question. What motivates you to secure your kingdom? You've got a life. Maybe you don't have a kingdom per se, but you've got things you like about your life. Ways of conducting yourselves, goals and plans like Rehoboam, you expect to get a big... It's going to be there in the future. Speaking now to the younger ones especially. And you have expectations and anticipation for what's going to happen and Maybe some of those things the Lord has decided that's not for you. And you don't like that. You have a career path, you're middle-aged, you've got a plan for how retirement's going to look and you're working hard and God's got something else for you. And you don't like it. How are you going to secure your kingdom? Are you being motivated to keep what you have out of fear? Do you hang on to your quality of living or the comfort that you have, not stepping out to serve more, be more aggressive in your efforts to minister to others because I like it this way? Do you secure your kingdom by giving so much time to those things that keep you comfortable? Stealing that time from other things that are more important. Have you ever taken the time to assess how you intend to secure what maybe God has said in the case of Rehoboam? That's not for you. And you're wrestling and you're wrestling and you're fighting and he has already decided that is not going to be yours. Have you considered, do you find yourself tempted to secure your kingdom against God's direction? Sometimes you want something. And it's just wrong. It's just sinful. But I want it so badly. Right? As our kids grow up and they see their friends get things that our family has decided, that's not for you. And you see the anguish in their face. I want, I want this, Dad. I just want this. And it's tough to sit, well, maybe it's not so tough, to sit down and say, well, he's not for me. you're not getting that. And then come the magic words. The magic words that in our house guarantee that you will absolutely not get the thing you're asking for. You know what those words are? Everybody else has one. Conversation's over. <laughs> and I, I'm driving the car and I like stop and say, haven't you, and I'm like, haven't you learned yet that as soon as you say that, the game is over? And th- they'll stop. But my fear is that on the inside, they want this thing. They want it. 
And sometimes it motivates people to do things that are simply ungodly. Maybe that fear keeps you from having a hard conversation you really need to have. But I just want them to like me. And really, it's your job to be the one to say, look, we got to talk because this can't continue. Right? Maybe it's your job to be the one to meet that person and encourage them, but I don't like that guy. She bothers me. But it's your job. But then people might associate me with them and my kingdom will diminish. But God wants you to do it. And fear, desire to protect yourself, to secure your kingdom is now motivating you to act against God's direction. We all know people who we watch and say, that's a bad choice. We see them going down the path and you say, oh, please listen to me, stop. And sometimes you realize that, you know, sin, somebody said, maybe it was Matt Darwin, sin makes you stupid. And people want sinful things. And in the case of Rehoboam, he wanted something sinful. He wanted to preserve a kingdom that God had already said was going to be dismembered. Don't get your troops together. It's not going to work. In Rehoboam's case, he had a promise from God, but it wasn't enough. He couldn't trust God. He wanted to secure it even more. And the effect is to come up with something new that had lasting consequences for his kingdom. Ask yourself how you are securing what the Lord has entrusted to you. And if you're doing it out of fear, lack of trust, disobedience, remember these two guys. It didn't end well for them as they looked to themselves for security that they should have found in the one who gave them their thrones. For some in this room, we could ask a slightly different question. How are you securing your place in God's kingdom? For some of you, your relationship with Christ is based on what you do. You give, you serve, you're nice. And your expectation is that at the end of class, he's going to give you a test and you're going to pass. Some of you think you'll pass with flying colors. Some of you think it's just enough to pass better than the guy next to you. And you're securing your place in God's eternal kingdom by your own efforts. Just like Rehoboam and Jeroboam secured their earthly kingdoms by their own efforts, you're trying to earn your place in God's kingdom doesn't work that way. If you think about how much you would actually have to do to earn that spot, your kingdom would have to be very, very big. So consider if you don't know Christ today. Consider if you do know Him and you're basing your security on what you do, that God makes you a promise. If you come to Him, confessing your sins, trusting Him entirely, he will secure your place in His kingdom. You don't have to work for it. It's already been done. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your kindness to us. We thank You for the way You provide for us. You love us. You're on our side. And more often than not, we see that, we hear that, and we just don't believe it. You came that we might have life and have it more abundantly and we just feel like we can't trust you for that. And we really need to add to the things you're already doing. And so, 
we try to secure the good things you've given us in ways that don't honor you. Help us, we pray, to remember these two men. Rehoboam, who had a promise that he didn't like. Jeroboam, who had a promise that he couldn't trust. And both of them went out of their way to secure their kingdoms in ways that dishonored you. Father, I pray for anyone here who is interested in the gospel, maybe has made a profession of faith, but finds themselves struggling to continually secure their position in your kingdom. Father, I pray that you would give a measure of peace and understanding that they might see you have done it all for them. Trust and faith is what's required now. You, through your Holy Spirit, will empower the works that you want to see done, but those works will not earn them a spot in your kingdom. We ask, Lord, that you would bless, I ask that you would bless my friends here in this body, that CBC would be a light for the gospel in this neighborhood, in Dallas, that there would be unity among the believers here. Give the elders wisdom. Give everyone here hearts and spirits of joy and delight in what you do in this place. And we ask that you would bless it for your kingdom. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.